The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Jane Ridley. Jane's new book is a new biography of George V, subtitled Never a Dull Moment. And as somebody's just read it, I can attest to that. But notoriously, that subtitle takes on the great charge against George, which is that he was as boring as hell. Jane, why has he got this reputation as being as boring as he was? Well, Sam, good morning. I think that is a very good question. I think that he was very sort of discreet and he kept his diary, which is the sort of, you know, it's it's the sort of the most boring kind of diary that you can imagine. Um, it just says what time he got up, what the weather's like, what he had for lunch, what time he had lunch, who he met through the day. It's all sort of fact and there's no reflection at all. That sort of evidence, I think, has caused people to think, you know, that he was a good man, but a dull man. And that was the sort of idea that I had when I began the book. And people would say rather pityingly to me, you know, how on earth are you going to cope with the dullness? But the more I got into it, and I spent an awful long time on it, the more I felt that George really wasn't dull. And certainly that, you know, the times that he was living through were not at all dull. The opposite, tumultuous, you know, life-changing. And equally... I found his um, his marriage very interesting. Now, as you say, you you know you, you do concede that, that wading through these diaries, which are extremely factual, and you quote from them often to kind of well, sort of devastating effect. You know, he'll sort of say, you know, X, somebody very close to him, you know, died, and you know, we we had supper at seven fifteen. Will be the sort of next line. Where is it that George's that that you get in the sources a better sense of George? I mean, because his his his. Letters to his wife, for instance, though obviously this marriage was a strong one, if an unusual one, they're quite stiff, even the love letters, aren't they? Where does he let himself go? Where do you find the real George shining through? I think his letters to his wife are quite, for, for, for the kind of, you know, for the class and the time and the sort of man he was, they are quite sort of relaxed. I mean, he does, you know, declare his love for her quite a lot. Says he's longing to kiss her in a railway carriage, all that sort of thing. And you do get a very strong idea that this marriage is is really crucial to his whole life and reign and work and everything. So one thing I have tried to do is to bring Queen Mary much more into the picture than other biographers have done. I suppose, you, I mean, you, you get pictures of George from, from the way people write about him and what they say about him, the courtiers, particularly from things like Harold Nicholson's diary, the uncensored diary of Harold Nicholson, which has all these sort of rather good interviews that he made very shortly after George died, uh, where people would say, you know, things like he was a very humble man, but he believed in the, ro- in, in, in the divine right of kings. And, you know, he thought he was sort of just superior to everybody else. And that's how he was. That's sort of an insight you get from that from the diaries. Yes, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Nicholson. And, you know, I was fascinated by the way in which, you know, Nicholson, of course, was his first biographer. And he's had others since, most notably Kenneth Rose. But it's what Nicholson didn't put into the biography that in a way becomes becomes the most interesting thing. I mean, were he and, he and Rose, you know, was the reason in a way for your book to have a market and a 
and of value that Nicholson and Rose didn't really tell the full story. Yes, no, absolutely. Particularly Nicholson, who was given very strict instructions by the palace, by Tommy Lassells, that he mustn't include anything that was discreditable to the king and that, you know, he wasn't to really say anything about the private life. There's only eight references in the diary to Queen Mary. I mean, sorry, in the in the biography to Queen Mary. So I think that all the sort of goings-on in the palace and all the sort of scandals at court, all these things were definitely off-limits for the official life of um, Nicholson, which printed a lot of very useful political documents. But he himself admitted that the picture of George that he had created was like a stuffed tailor's dummy. You know, it wasn't the real man. And that if he had created the real man, I'm afraid, Nicholson went on to say he would have um, had to admit that he was the most awful bull. And I think that's what I would sort of challenge. I don't think he was. I don't think I could have spent seven years in his company. <laughs> that's been the case. <laughs> well, what sort of fellow was he? I mean, there are a number of sort of details that jumped out at me for a start, which, which always puts him into the bad hat category for me. He was an inveterate user of the comma splice. <laughs> but he was always thumping people as he talked to them. Yes, he had a rather endearing habit, sort of um, telling these stories, which he probably had told several times before. And when he got to the sort of punchline of the joke, thump, and so people would go away with black and blue arms. But this was not, you know, aggressive thumping. This was rather, uh, I, I rather liked that side to him, stumping around with his walking stick, shaking his stick at a picture when it was a Cezanne or something like that. He's sort of playing up. I think, to the sort of, you know, the, the character of the sort of, uh, the exaggerated character of the English country square. Yeah, no, I mean, the two things that everybody knows about him is that he, you know, was a fanatical stamp collector, which is much mocked. And he spent an awful lot of time blasting feathered and furred creatures to oblivion. I mean, what, what do those sort of hobbies kind of tell us about him? Well, the thing about both of them is that he was incredibly good at them. He was a brilliant shot one of the top six or top four shots in Britain. So he was, he was very perfectionist and, and sort of athletic. I think you have to be, to be, you have to be incredibly well coordinated to be able to shoot that accurately. And um, also with his stamp collecting, he made um, a stamp collection, which is one of the best, I, I'm not an expert at all on stamp collecting, but it is one of the best um, stamp collections in the world, I think, still, the Queen's Stamp Collection. So when he did things, he did them well. I think that a stamp collection tells us uh, well, perhaps partly that it was quite nice for him to see all these... He concentrated on, on empire stamps. So it was quite nice for him to see all these images of his own head on the, all these stamps, which he collected in <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> yes, he was, very, he was very upset when his first, his first stamp as king was unsatisfactory. Oh, that was awful for him, because he'd been anticipating designing the most beautiful... or having the most beautiful stamp designed to commemorate him becoming king. And there was a sort of muddle up and the wrong person did the you know, did the draft and the wrong people printed it and it was a disaster. But I do think that, you know, it's part, the stamp collection does tell us a bit about his lack of education. He didn't know about paintings. He didn't know about art. He, so he couldn't collect that, really. But he had the ability, the stamp collection shows us, to make a huge collection. It is rather sad that he didn't have more education. Yeah, I mean, that, his childhood was one... I mean, I mean, it's how that sort of shaped him, because, of course... He wasn't the heir to start with, yeah. you know, and he had this brother, Eddie, with whom he had a very close relationship. And Eddie seems to have been, in most respects, a bit of a duffer. You know, what, what was the setup for the future king's childhood? What shaped him? Why wasn't he so well educated? Well, George was sort of educated with Eddie 
And the two of them were sent off on various sort of cruises on, on ships around the world, accompanied by their tutor, Canon Dalton, and basically training to be, or being, being sort of trained to be uh, for naval careers, to be naval officers. And I mean, it's an extraordinary education because really the core of it, the problem of it was that Eddie, the older son, really wasn't very bright. Or if he was very bright, he was absolutely not prepared to do a stroke of work and his tutor couldn't didn't get on with him. So it was felt really important that Eddie should not go to a public school because then other people would know that the heir to the throne was, should we say, you know, intellectually challenged. So what happened was that Eddie went, but he couldn't go by himself on these cruises. So he went with George. And that was all right for George. He did rather well on that. He, in, at the beginning, he enjoyed the Navy. He wanted to be a career naval officer and he did well. He, he came out top on exams and he was, he was, he understood the maths of, of, of sailing and all that sort of thing. So he was a good pupil, but Eddie did absolutely nothing. And then Eddie went to Cambridge and that was a bit of a sham too. And then Eddie became a sort of, I mean, he's a terribly sweet character, Eddie, I think, but he was terribly easily led. And, you know, there were all sorts of scandals that were sort of beginning to sort of catch up. Lots of girlfriends. It was just, and, and, and then when he was 28, he became engaged to Princess May of Tech, who was introduced as an element who could sort of control him and sort of make him reform him, and then died six weeks later of pneumonia. So it's a very sad story. And that left George, who really hadn't expected to become king and didn't want to. I mean, to his credit, you know, he was devastated by Eddie's death. He didn't see this as his opportunity at all. It left him with uh, age 25, six or so, with the, you know, with the job of being king and having to prepare for that. His relationship with his mother seems to have been enormously strong. I mean, that seems to be one of the places where the real, his real flow of feeling comes up. You know, his, his father was very different to him. But his Alex, his mum, was always mother dear, wasn't she? Yes. Uh, yeah, he was terrified of his father. And the letters to his father are really stilted and, and dull. But you're quite right. The letters that he wrote to his mother, mother dear, as she was always called, were, uh, you know, they were sort of spontaneous. He told her everything. They just sort of flow. And I think those are the best letters that he wrote, actually. They're better than his letters to, to his wife. And I think that his relationship with her was very close and, and, and very important to him. Um, I mean, she adored him, she supported him. But it was fortunate, perhaps, that he got away from home because she did have a habit of infantilising her children, sort of trapping the daughters who didn't go away, were trapped in a permanent state of, of childhood by Alexandra, who really didn't want any of them to grow up or get married or leave home. So the fact that George was sent off to see actually was helpful to him because it meant that he could have a relationship with Alexandra that was very strong. But the thing about her was she was, you know, she was very sort of forgetful. She would pick her people up and drop them, as it were. She could be incredibly affectionate and then she wouldn't write for months and months. So she was a slightly difficult mother to have. The relationship with May of Tech, which is, you know, absolutely central to your story, you know, it started in a slightly odd way, obviously. She, you know, was his older brother's fiance. Yes. And they, you know, she was, at least as you represent it, to start with, rather a sort of chilly character. She was emotionally quite repressed. And, you know, it didn't look very much like a love match and people were struggling to see how this would work. But it did. Why, you know, why was that and how was that? Can you give a sense of, of their relationship? Well, I mean, it absolutely was an arranged marriage. Uh, and Queen Victoria, who adored, you know, one of her favourite occupations was marrying off her grandchildren. Queen Victoria really pushed George into it, and also May. 
um, or Mary. So, so it was definitely arranged. And many of the arranged marriages made by Queen Victoria didn't work at all. But this one did, although it took a, a long time before they accepted that it worked. I mean, I think both of them felt that they'd been pushed. George, you know, his friend said how depressed and anxious he looked. And also people said, well, you know, all um, that um, Princess May wants is the, is the throne. And she doesn't mind whether she's married to Eddie or whether she's married to George. Her real love is being queen. So at the beginning, it really wasn't, didn't look very good. And they couldn't talk to each other. They were both incredibly, particularly Mary, incredibly shy and reserved. And they would write these letters saying, you know, if only I'd been able to say how I felt, it might have been better. But I really couldn't tell you um, how fond I was of you. The very sort of stiff, conventional letters. And then something happens sort of quite soon after the marriage. And George writes her a love letter, amazingly, uh, when she goes away for a day. And from that time on, they both of them are absolutely committed to that marriage. I mean, they are they are incredibly faithful to one another. Um, and George makes that famous remark saying, um, I'm only interested in my own wife. I'm not interested in other men's wives, which definitely sort of marked him off from his father, who had been, you know, one of the most famous philanderers of Europe. Yes. Do, do you think he was reacting against his father in that respect? I think to an extent he probably was, yes. And he'd seen, I think he felt very strongly for the, the, the sort of hurt that his mother had suffered. And I think to his credit that he also felt that, you know, he had a respect for women in a way perhaps that his father didn't. And he certainly felt that he, that Mary was his intellectual equal, and that he could talk to her. And in fact, he knew that she was sort of in many ways cleverer than him. And he was fine with that. You know, what's fascinating is obviously the, at the beginning of your book, you know, we, Victoria's still on the throne. And there's this, still this sense of, you know, obviously May is of tech, rather than of Peckham, that this was a very European royalty. This was a sort of pre-war, pan-European dynastic monarchy. And that the shift that occurred in the course of the book is one of the big shifts of his era, wasn't it? That you know, the monarchy became British, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes, uh, Queen Victoria, grandmother of Europe, marrying off all her grandchildren, very much part of a dynastic world in which George is quite comfortable. You know, his great friendship with Nicholas II, the um, Nicky, the Russian Tsar, he's, he's, he's part of that world. And although he's not very good at languages, he certainly didn't want to change things. And then the First World War comes along. And, you know, the, 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 all the European emperors, well, murdered in the case of the, of the Romanovs, but, you know, the Kaiser, everybody goes. All that world is, is totally destroyed by the First World War. And what's interesting, and, and actually, you know, to George's credit, he adapts to that very easily and, 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 and very cleverly. I mean, he recreates the dynasty, and instead of being Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, it is now Windsor, which is a, a reassuringly English name. Um, he I didn't said, realize, incidentally, how... how- how sort of ad hoc that the name of Windsor was. It was almost like there was, well, we could try this, we could try this, we could try this. And the uh, private secretary says, how about Windsor? No, it was exactly like that. Uh, the king plays no part in, 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 you know, suggesting names. There are just a few elder st- statesmen who are, who were called in to sort of suggest things like Tudor Stuart, which... Uh, <laughs> which luckily the king and queen reject. And yes, the private secretary suddenly says, well, what about Windsor? And actually, there were some people who had the surname of Windsor, the the Earl of Plymouth was called Windsor Clive. They weren't consulted. They were just told it would sort of, they should be pleased that their name had been (laughs) sort of taken (laughs) by the royals. Uh, But Windsor worked very well. Uh, Certainly, everything was very pragmatic. 
And there were also various rules made saying that um, the, well, not rules, but there was, it was laid down by the king that it would be a good idea uh, for his children to marry British uh, women rather than marrying, you know, foreign princesses, in particular German princesses, which they'd done for centuries. I mean, actually, even before the war, though, we'll get, we'll get back to the war, you know, he becomes king in such a way as, you know, perhaps the biggest constitutional hot potato of the last couple of hundred years is sort of inherited, you know, it kind of drops in his lap. Couldn't have been a worse time to become king or a harder time. Uh, he has to deal as monarch. He's expected to deal with that, yes, a constitutional hot potato. The constitutional crisis over the Parliament Bill in the House of Lords, which then leads on to a linked crisis over Home Rule. It was a really difficult time that his father had died. And George was somehow expected to sort of play an important part in it. And he was, he felt that he was really badly sort of misled and duped by the Prime Minister Asquith. It's also complicated, the politics of this. But basically what Asquith does is to force George to agree to use his prerogative as king if Asquith loses an ele- wins an election and if the Lords refuse to, you know, chuck out the bill, the Parliament bill, which is at the centre of this difficult issue. And he's forced into this by Asquith and then he realises quite soon afterwards that this he didn't need to do that. He could he, that Asquith has act, has bullied him into doing something that was wrong. And really that is the sort of defining crisis of his reign because he now realises that he cannot that the monarchy must be above politics if it's to survive and that he mustn't agree to things like Asquith's unreasonable demands over what they call the the November pledges. He must exercise his own initiative, which he does from then on, really. Well, it's kind of cooked up as well, isn't it, that that he is lied to by, I think, Nollies, isn't it? Yeah. Who's his, 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 his private secretary at that point? He had two private secretaries. Knowles yeah. was one and, and Big was another. And Knowles was liberal. Yes, and Knowles, Knowles sort of knew that this was unnecessary, but omitted to tell the king. He knew that it was unnecessary. Yes, absolutely. And advised the king that he had no alternative but to agree to what Mr Asquith asked him to do. And so when George realises that, uh, what, what, you know, what a wrong thing he'd done, he sacks Knowles and Knowles is, is re- there is just one private secretary, big, later Lord Stamfordham, who plays a really important part in the role, sorry, in the reign. Stamfordham is, is, you know, he's a rather wonderful character, I think. And he writes all these marvellous memorandas, you know, always in uh, dark black ink, very, very legible. And every constitutional or political crisis that the king is involved with, Stamford and Bins there at his elbow, going around canvassing opinions, talking to people, and then advising the king what to do. And they form a very good partnership. Yes, I loved the, the, the sense of the biographer's relief that comes through your pages when you say, whenever I'm in an archive and I find Lord Stamford's hand, you know, I know there's going to be something sort of sensible and loose. <laughs> no, it's a great relief thing. He's lovely black writing. <laughs> The funny thing about that constitutional crisis is that, which maybe that tells us something psychologically about his relationship with his father, that because the old king was right on the point of, you know, having to decide whether or not to make these guarantees to Asquith before he dies. And yet the new king had no idea any of this was going on. Yeah, I know. That's really interesting. Uh, that, um, in fact, you know, it's because there's a wider point, really, that, that the old king is doing very little to sort of 
train, prepare his son for becoming king and not keeping him up to speed with that crucial crisis was really a kind of, well, it, it was a sort of dereliction of duty, really, on the point of Edward VII. He should have been more communicative. He should have told George what was going on. They got on well at a personal level. But I think that George always felt that he was sort of inferior to his father, that he, you know, he always felt frightened by him. And although his father said all these sort of affectionate things saying, you know, I want you to treat me as your brother. I mean, no way could George treat Edward VII as his brother. Um, his father seemed so, such a sort of um, significant figure. The other thing that George seemed to do, which showed some political nous, I mean, as you say, he wanted to be above politics, but he didn't really have much of a choice, for, you know, at various points in his reign, that over Irish home rule, and the, the simmering question of whether there was going to be a civil war in Ireland, which obviously was, you know, a suboptimal situation for the king to find himself in. He seems to have navigated that pretty well, doesn't he? I mean, it may actually have helped. I think that's right. I think he he had had his fingers badly burnt by the guarantees and he was determined not to let that happen again. So he he gets Stamfordham and he himself canvasses his opinion. I mean, he has this enormous sort of, um, you know, file of letters consulting everybody involved with the Irish question about what they feel. So that by the end of it, he knew much more about the Irish question and the Home Rule issue than the Prime Minister did or the government did. He had this huge correspondence. And then he invites the politicians on both sides, you know, the Irish and the, and, and the Liberals and the Unionists from Ulster, to a, a, a conference at Buckingham Palace, which was, I think, a good thing to do, though perhaps it would never have succeeded. But at least his priority is not to please either of the party parties. His priority is just to stop his uh, subjects uh, killing each other in Ulster, he says. And that's the bottom line for him. And I think that was a sensible, intelligible way to sort of deal with it. Obviously, he reached a sort of uneasy truce with Asquith, if I'm, if I'm representing that right. But Lloyd George was a real problem for him, wasn't he? I mean, he couldn't stick Lloyd George. He couldn't stick Lloyd George and Lloyd George couldn't stick him. Lloyd George didn't really believe, had Republican, you know, a bit of Republican elements in his makeup and very little respect for the king. And he would say things like, when he got a summons to the palace, I wonder what our little German friend wants me for now. He, Lloyd George, actually treated the king with great disrespect. He, you know, he wouldn't listen when the king got annoyed because he'd uh, created Lord Aitken into a peer, made him Beaverbrook, that sort of thing. All the king's bete noirs were made peers by Lloyd, uh, Lloyd George, and many of them were corrupt. Many of them were giving vast amounts of money to party funds in order to get their titles. And the king couldn't bear this, and he couldn't bear not being consulted, and he couldn't bear the prerogative being ignored and all that. So it was a very sticky relationship. At the first, I think I, I think you have to remember, though, that it's easy to criticise Lloyd George, but he was actually uh, in the middle of fighting the First World War, uh, taking an incredibly active role in the running of that war. And so it's a little bit, it must have been slightly annoying for uh, Lloyd George to receive yet another letter from the palace about, um, you know, such and such a peer <laughs> when he yes, had bigger no. things on his plate. <laughs> yes, no, I think you, you, you say these sort of mosquito bites or pinpricks coming from the palace while he's fighting the First World War. And, and, and this is that, that moment where the king sort of tells off Effie Smith for wearing the wrong sort of hat. No, and most people, though, when they were told that, would sort of get rather nervous and, you know, sort of put on the right sort of hat. But with F.E. Smith, the king did meet his match, and he gets rather rude letters back from F.E. Smith saying, you know, when he's doing his job, he doesn't expect to be told off by his monarch about what, you know, if he's wearing the wrong hat, which was perfectly reasonable. 
And in fact, George does back down. But 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 he was obsessed with clothes. He was a man. Well, this is the argument over Jeremy Corbyn's attire at the cenotaph all over again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Michael Foot. <laughs> or Michael Foot's yeah. Michael Foot's alleged yeah. donkey jacket. I mean, in the First World War, it seemed to me, at least, that the king, kind of maybe through intuition that you know things were a bit shaky for monarchy, he actually, you know, was very conscious of the fact that the the government, the, sorry, the, that the country was going through a time of crisis and that actually maybe all that pomp and circumstance needed to be reined in. No, absolutely. And so uh, he's, he's you know, right from the very beginning of the war, he dresses in khaki and all the sort of court ceremonial is sort of put on hold. And Queen Mary joins in sort of rationing the food that they eat and saying that they're, you know, only allowed to have meat a certain amount of times each a week. And then he rather overdoes it, actually, by by being, he was sort of, tricked by Lloyd George into agreeing to sort of pledge himself and the palace to drink no alcohol for the duration of the war. And by the time this has gone public, he can't go back on it. Uh, So they have these terrible joyless dinners with, you know, sort of um, nasty fruit juice. And um, I think Queen Mary liked sparkling Moselle and she had sort of what pretended to be elderflower or something, but was actually sparkling Moselle. And the king would apparently go and have a glass of port by himself after dinner in his study. But nevertheless, and so they were slightly ridiculed for all this, actually, for taking it too far. Overall, that seems to be part of the trajectory of what, you know, what we now get to call modernising the monarchy. But he really did move quite far and quite fast, didn't he? I mean, not just the change of the name, but the, the stripping down of, you know, I think he strips down the civil list a bit, doesn't he? He gives away a huge amount of money. No, I think he was very much aware and worried about the possibility of some kind of anti-monarchical backlash. I think he also had a really strong view about what his role was. You know, all his colleagues, as uh, his fellow monarchs or uh, emperors, or not all of them, but most of them, were taking an active part. You know, Nicky goes off to the war and the Kaiser is at the front a lot of the time. And he's very careful to not be involved in the direction of the war and not to take any part in in deciding that, you know, the actual strategy or, or certainly not to sort of spend time pretending to be a soldier. He goes out to visit the troops, but, but that's different. And I think that was wise and, and, and correct that he didn't get involved. I was surprised that the, the troops didn't seem to appreciate the visits as much as you might have thought. I mean, there's a you say that they, he and May were known as fertile and futile by the soldiers. Yeah, well, there was quite a sort of back, back, you know, there was quite a lot of sort of backlash against them, against them. And a sense that, um, you know, that they, they weren't totally popular, I think, during the First World War. I think it was quite, you know, it was worrying for them. I'm not sure how much they knew about the, 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 the criticism and the unpopularity. But certainly at the end of the First World War, there was a very strong feeling that the monarchy must modernise if it's to survive and it must have, you know, press officers and it must be more in touch with public opinion. Um, and, and that's really the lowest point, actually, I think, of his reign at the end of the First World War, that sort of criticism. When he insists on really hiding away from the big issues by, you know, conscientiously doing all these visits and visiting hospitals all the time, and all that sort of thing, which was good. But it meant that uh, he gets out of touch, really, with opinion. He refuses to have entertained people at Buckingham Palace. He refuses to have dinner parties. He doesn't know what the important people are thinking. 
And that is a sort of danger point, which he's rescued from to an extent by Queen Mary, who understood what was going on much more than him at that point. Now, one of the, um, you know, big sort of talking points when one talks about George V is this question of whether or not he should have given cousin Nicky asylum. And why was it, do you think, was it an intuition that, you know, European royalty was, you know, in the balance? that prevented him? I mean, I think you, you you make the case that it would have made no difference even if he had, but, but what do you think, you know, what do you think was the thinking there? And do you think he made the right choice? I think there was a, that it was an intuition that um, monarchy in Europe was under threat and lots of thrones were not going to survive, lots of dynasties, and that the Russian um, Romanov dynasty was the most sort of politically toxic of all because the Tsar was an autocrat and, you know, all the pogroms against the Jews, etc. I mean, strange character, because he was such a sort of mild-mannered, conscientious man, and yet presided over this awful regime. And I think that there were various... Stamford, in particular, went round sort of gathering opinion from people who were involved with working... or knew what was happening with working-class politics. And he felt very strongly that there was, a, a, you know, that if the Tsar and his wife came to this country, there was a danger of some kind of a, a socialist slash Bolshevik, well, uprising is perhaps too strong, but protest. And I think that was probably wrong, but I'm not sure that judgment was right. I don't think there was, Bolshe- that there was much Bolshevik opinion in Britain in 1917, but I think that was his worry, that it would, it would endanger the throne. I mean, the other troublesome cousin, of course, was the Kaiser. Um, I, I was sort of interested in the way his view seems to change, because after the war, you say, you quote him to the effect that, you know, cousin William is a monstrous criminal who's been responsible for this disastrous thing. But then not very many years later, when there's a move to extradite the Kaiser mm. to make him face charges for these crimes, the king is absolutely outraged. Yes, no, that's quite true. There's a, a real shift in opinion. Not sure why that was, but I think... The Kaiser sitting in, in, in Dawn is actually behaving quite well, they thought anyway. Um, they didn't want more bloodshed. Queen Mary was quite fond of the Kaiser because the Kaiser had always been nice to her when she wasn't important before she was queen. So I suppose once they'd got, you know, once once the sort of uh, the, the, the feeling that the Kaiser was, had been responsible for the most ghastly war in human history, once that feeling had sort of <laughs> calmed down a bit, um, <laughs> uh, the Kaiser was um, left alone. <laughs> He did. I mean, he wasn't invited here or anything. There was no contact beyond these letters between him and Queen Mary. Now, also, obviously, you know, a monarch passes, you know, secures the monarchy through their children as well. And, you know, the, his relationship with his children seems to me to be one of the most kind of tricky charges against him, as it were. I mean, he bullied them, didn't he? He bullied his sons. I mean, he loved his and and and, and he, he he was very gentle to his daughter, uh, and he was always he was always nice to young girls actually. But Mary got away; his daughter Mary got away from you know was was fine. But it was particularly David or Edward VIII or Duke of Windsor or whatever we like to call him, his eldest son. Uh, he found really difficult to get on with, right? Even from being, I mean, a quite small boy. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, he he bullied his sons and. The one who survived best, I think, was Bertie, future George VI, who sort of survived by becoming as like as he could to his father. 
you know, same handwriting, same sort of clothes, same, you know, equally good at, at shooting, all that sort of thing, turning himself into a, a mini George V. Why do you think he was so aggressive to them? I mean, was that the sort of martinet kind of naval officer coming out of him? I think it was partly the martinet naval officer. I think that David was very difficult as an ad- adolescent. And, and, you know, he lost lots of weight and he obviously wasn't terribly well, I don't think. And then the First World War came along and uh, that gave them something to quarrel about because David was desperate to get to the front to fight and his father was desperate that he shouldn't. I mean, some people thought that the reason why he, he was so difficult with David was because he was aware that David could have been an absolutely sort of brilliant king, could have could have been so successful and yet was throwing it all around, all away by um, becoming a sort of film star character, a sort of celebrity and a sort of narcissistic socialite. Do, I mean, do, do you think that the, that the seeds of the abdication crisis can be put down in part to George's relationship with David? Or do you definitely. think that's... Yes, definitely. I think that, that because basically George made no attempt to heal that rift with his eldest son. And so that, that David forms his own, you know, his own world. And, and then Mrs. Simpson comes along. And um, I think he was terribly bad, actually. Both of them were t- rather bad at being parents particularly parents of sort of children in their 20s. And so David, from a very early age, from his early 20s, is, is you know, involved with Mrs Dudley Ward. And that affair goes on for, for years. And he leaves home. I mean, he has his own establishment. And from then on, really, there's things go get worse and worse, relations between him and his father. Yes, I mean, it's always a sense that for, for a lot of this book, he's, he's busy saving the monarchy, but he's also helping to sow the seeds of its... Yes, exactly. Difficulties. Exactly, exactly. Um, do, do you think that there are, I mean, lessons for today or echoes of today in in the reign of George? Well, uh, I suppose, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the great things about George is he makes the monarchy so incredibly popular. And it is extraordinary that in the 1920s, the monarchy should emerge as, uh, you know, one of the key national institutions and at the centre of the nation's political culture, etc., uh, when you consider that, you know, there's been all those revolutions and, and things have changed so much. And I think that the key to him being so successful in that was that although uh, the monarchy remained very sort of royal and all the royal traditions were still adhered to, that he and Queen Mary live what is really rather simple lives. I mean, you know, it's summed up in the picture of them having dinner together when there's nobody else there, which is what he much preferred to do, no, just dinner at home. But dinner at home for him involved putting on a white tie and a garter, um, a, you know, garter, garter star, and Queen Mary wearing her garter ribbon and a, a um, you know... A, a tiara. Tiara. Yes. Um, <laughs> So it's this kind of domestic sort of humdrum nature of the monarchy that I think works. And I think that to an extent, that's part of the secret of the success of the Queen today, uh, that, that it's not sort of over the top grand, that, that people can sort of identify with it. And I think that's what George did too. Well, George V, Never a Dull Moment is out either now or any minute. Jane Ridley, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.